there's always movies aging into sort of like cult classic dumb, you know, like as someone who started out like being really into showing movies from the 70s and then the 80s and then the 90s, then I was kind of like, you know, for me myself, I think that there were, it, I, I sort of need movies to age like wine. So like now the, the vintage of the early 2000s is finally, you know, fresh enough for me to be like, oh, this is good. Like, let, let's, let's go into this movie. So yeah, there, there's just always movies, you know, there, you know, there's always going to be something to kind of dig up, you know? Hey everybody, welcome back to Marquee Mixtape. This is the podcast about repertory cinema in New York City. I'm your host, Alec Rodriguez. So we've reached the end of January, which means we've also reached the end of the Robert De Niro retrospective at Nighthawk Cinema. Bobby's World and Bobby B-Sides ran from January 3rd through January 31st at both Nighthawk locations. The film series comes to a climactic finale on January 31st with a screening of Michael Mann's Heat the 4K restoration, and that showing has been sold out for weeks. In the last episode of Marquee Mixtape, we spoke with Desmond Thorne about his work as a programmer at Nighthawk Cinema, his process in developing Bobby's World, and we learned about his meteoric rise as a programmer from Newfest to Nighthawk. In this episode, I'm pleased to share that you're going to hear my conversation with Christina Cacioppo. She's one of the directors of programming at Nighthawk, and she programmed the De Niro Deep Cuts in the Bobby B-Sides film series. Those selections were the Brian De Palma film Hi Mom, Angel Heart, Midnight Run, and The Fan. She's been a programmer in New York City for over 20 years at places like Ocularis, 92Y Tribeca, the Alamo Drafthouse downtown Brooklyn, and Nighthawk Cinema. I had a lovely time getting to learn about her career story, her signature style in programming, and plenty of behind-the-screens insight into the work that goes into repertory programming. After my conversation with Christina Cacioppo, stick around for my reactions to Nighthawk Cinema's De Niro retrospective with my good friend Christine Gaddy. Christine and I each caught a few screenings from Bobby's World and Bobby B-Sides, and we discuss our experiences and takeaways from examining the selected works of Robert De Niro. Now here's my interview with Nighthawk Cinema's Director of Programming, Christina Cacioppo. Well, Christina Cacioppo, welcome to Marquee Mixtape. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's so nice to finally meet you. I've been a huge fan of all the work that you've been doing um, on the repertory side at Nighthawk Cinema. I've always seen your name kind of float around. I'm like, oh, wow, this, this person seems really cool. So it's really awesome to finally meet you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and congratulations on the uh, the De Niro retrospective. We're kind of like in the final week at this point, the final week stretch. And I understand that you sort of like directly programmed the Bobby B-Sides part of it. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> doing the De Niro series was Desmond Thorne, my colleague's idea. Uh, so he had kind of mapped out the, you know, the huge portion of the series. Mm -hmm. And um you know, I, I program this series that's ongoing. That's like our Monday nights in Prospect Park late rounds. Mm -hmm. And at one point uh, last year, I had done a specific B-side series, which was highlighting, you know, the lesser known movies of, of, you know, kind of the most celebrated actors. 
So when Desmond had that on the calendar, I was like, oh, well, I'll focus on some of the B-sides of De Niro for that month's late rounds. You know, so there's there's four Mondays in the month. So, you know, it, it could have gone a lot deeper, too. I mean, obviously, this is like decades of a career. Right. So, you know, I, I sort of end up I, I tried to, sp- you know, span several decades and I basically kind of go from 70s to 80s to 90s. Totally. Yeah. And and I love what I love about Nighthawk's, uh, you know, late round series is that, of course, it focuses on, you know, horror gems, underground classics and cult oddities. And I love that it invites audiences to find those kinds of oddities on a Monday night. You know, it's like kind of like you would never really expect to find it on a Monday after 9 p.m. Um, it kind of adds like a, a playful, you know, interactive, you know, uh, for the audience and the best part is it's it's ten it's ten bucks. So and sometimes it's on thirty five millimeter too. So it's like it's quite a bargain. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, it's sort of a more utilitarian thing because Monday nights are are typically a dead night. So it's sort of you know it's sort of a scheme to get you into the theater. Um, but you know, for me, that's sort of just an excuse. That it's just sort of like a way to get to show some movies and to kind of have a cheap ticket as a way to lure people in. Yeah. It's, it's such a great way to to lure people in. Um, Did it click for you right away that you could maybe like dig up some De Niro films that fit the late round criteria? Yeah. I mean, I I knew that there were plenty to choose from, you know, and they didn't necessarily need to be horror. I, I don't think that anything in, you know, that I've ended up with, I mean, it's some, you know, like maybe angel heart and, is like kind of horror adjacent, but mm. yeah, you know, I, I knew that, you know, De Niro's had such a career that you, you, there was definitely something that was going to work in, in there. Right. Right. Um, and so maybe you can kind of go, but go behind, you know, what made you choose these four specific selections? Can you first tell mm-hmm. us what those movies were that are in the Bobby B sides? So we started with hi mom. Uh, and I'd say, you know, that was sort of like to have an early look at like the, the beginning of De Niro, you know, like before he was a name, uh, and, you know, and it's also De Palma, uh, early in his career. So I think the, the sort of marriage of those two and seeing what they did together, like this, this sort of like bohemian, like New York type of movie, I thought made a lot of sense to kind of, you know, uh, just just see the origins of of people that would go on to make a lot of films and have a lot of success. Um, then Angel Heart, uh, just a movie I really like, and I kind of wanted a reason to show it. Uh, and it is a different kind of character for him, um, you know, and just sort of like a, a real kind of like icky movie. <laughs> um, and I figured a lot of people maybe hadn't seen it. Uh, then there's Midnight Run, which is a comedy, and you know that sort of switches it up a bit. Um, and then tonight actually is the fan, which is the last of this week. And I think that is just, you know, De Niro plays such an unsavory character in it. I thought that that would be, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like he's not used to playing unsavory characters, but you know, this has a particular sort of like unattractiveness to it that I I think it's a really unhinged performance. Yeah. Those are some of my some of my favorite parts about going out to see a rep film is like just being surprised by what's on the marquee of like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't know De Niro ever worked with Wesley Snipes and Tony Scott, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe I'll read like half of the premise because at that point it's like, I'm already sold. Like just, just get me in that theater and it's yeah, on yeah. 35 millimeter. I was like, Oh, get me in there. You know? 
um yeah but those are um those are some real deep cut uh selections and um all of which i had never seen before so um i think i was most excited you know in the entire series to to watch hi mom because i mean the title alone <laughs> it's like what what's what's happening <laughs> and uh you know brian de palma and it's yeah and then also you know you mentioned angel heart and it's like it was, what's so fun about you know this type of a uh, film series is it kind of lets you know at least for me, it kind of let me kind of examine, you know, his career, but also, you know, his, his, his friends and coworkers careers too. Like when I saw Angel Heart, I was like, oh, that's interesting how him and Pacino both played like devil characters. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? About a decade apart from each other. And, um, Hi Mom is like from 1969, I think. And it's almost, it almost has a conversation with Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I never really realized like how many roles uh, De Niro played that were like uh, uh, veteran roles, like Vietnam vet veteran roles. And mm -hmm. I didn't really realize how that kind of shaped, you know, his um, his career, you know, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So re really interesting stuff. Um, but I am very excited to see the fan tonight. So that that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, so what is it like programming uh, late round movies? for audiences that have an appetite for 9 p.m. screenings on Mondays? Uh, do, do you usually work with like uh, midnight screenings or just late round screenings in general? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, before I started at Nighthawk, uh, I worked at Alamo Drafthouse and one of the main series, the two series that I, you know, I mean, I programmed everything there for Brooklyn, but you know, the, there's a long-standing tradition at Alamo for these Terror Tuesday and Weird Wednesday series, which mm -hmm. were traditionally, you know, in, started in Austin years ago as a, a late-night series, you know. And again, it's it's the same idea where, you know, the whole idea is that you're trying to get people in on off-business off nights, you know. That's sort of the mm -hmm. setup. But as a programmer, it just sort of gives you a lot of ability to play around with uh you know the kinds of films and you know there's this idea of, of sort of like what is an after dark type of film um so you know i i think being that kind of cult movies have sort of always been my thing um mm. it has made sense that you know doing sort of more late night stuff you know i mean it's just kind of a part of what i do at nighthawk you know where yeah. our programming team kind of goes across the board, but, you know, we do have other late night series too. Um, you know, this other series that I do ridiculous to sublime is largely mm -hmm. a, a late, a late round series, you know, it, uh, another day of the week, but usually, you know, the idea is, is getting people out for something a little, you know, just off center. Right. Um, and when would you say your, um, I guess like your, your fandom, your fascination for, you know, those type of cult classics, when did that all start for you? I mean, I think it was born out of my love for movies, you know, really early on. I think my entry point for like being into movies, mm. you know, as is probably true for a lot of people was John Waters when I was, you know, in high school, uh, because there was just something like once I sort of saw this sort of like transgressive world, I was like, yeah, that's for me, you know, and <laughs> Uh, you know, and that was the entry point for a lot of different types of movies. And, you know, that, that also expanded into even seeing films from other countries, because I think at the same time, you know, I was into John Waters, I got really into uh, Nagisa Oshima's In the Realm of the Senses, you know, which mm. is 
you know, just like this pretty sexually explicit movie. Uh, you know, it is considered kind of art house, but it, you know, it has these genre elements. Um, so yeah, it just sort of was always my thing. And I mean, I like all kinds of movies, you know, I also right. watch, you know, pre-code movies, uh, which, you know, are kind of their own sort of like, um, you know, uh, racy type of content that you'd be surprised mm -hmm. for movies from the early 1930s. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do love all kinds of movies. It's just, it sort of ended up being, I guess, my role as a programmer in New York City to sort of like put those movies more front and center. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's sort of been my thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you ever get a chance to see people's reactions? Do you ever like pop into a, into a screening to see how people are going to react to maybe like a famous scene in, in one of those movies you selected? Do you, do you read letterbox reviews? Do you, has anyone ever come up to you, you know, to talk about the movie afterwards? Yeah. I mean, I do try to be at screenings. Um, you know, I'm not always at the late round. I, I am going tonight for the fam. Um, but nice. you know, my ridiculous to sublime series, I do host those screenings and I do stay, uh, the, you know, we just did this movie live wire, which is, uh, this movie from the early 90s starring Pierce Brosnan before he was James Bond. And it is like a very insane, like very, you know, explosion ridden movie. <laughs> and watching that with an audience was amazing. You know, people were losing their minds <clears throat> very audibly. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I, you know, I do get feedback, you know, it, it sort of is a trap getting to, you know, getting into looking at letterbox because, <laughs> You know, it's the kind of thing where sometimes you'll see somebody comment on your intro and, and like you, you, it makes you really oh, no. self-conscious. So, you know, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so that's that that can be sort of like a trap. But mm. more often than not, you do see people, you know, reacting really positively. And that and that's it. It is interesting to have Letterboxd as a resource to kind of like see, right. you know, it's 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 like, you know, reading the reviews the next day or whatever. So right. that's why it can be good and can be bad. But yeah, it's really nice to get feedback, even, you know, the night of sometimes people, you know, will like say thank you or, <clears throat> you know, talk to you about it. So it always has been part of it for me has been showing up to the screenings and being there whenever possible, you know, yeah. to, because the idea is to share, you know. Right. I love that. Um, what was what was some of your earliest experiences um, being on the other end, you know, being in the audience and kind of discovering what repertory cinema is? Um, well, I grew up uh, my teenage years in Florida, and there wasn't much in the way of repertory there. There was Tampa Theater, which is actually a very beautiful theater that still exists. It was mm. a silent era, one screen uh, oh, nice. that they've maintained. You know, they still show new movies uh, for the most part, and then they have some special events. But, you know, that's where I saw Clockwork Orange uh, when I was a teenager. Um, nice. so, you know, I, I did have like a bit of a resource for that, but not to the extent that people in New York do, like I, there wasn't really much to go after. And then, right. you know, once I started to be a, a little bit more free in, in my later teenage years, uh, you know, I, there were a couple times where I drove up to Gainesville to university of Florida, where I did ultimately end up going to college, but they had a pretty good on-campus cinema so before I even went to school there, there were a couple times that I drove up to see movies. And mm. then, you know, once I was going there, I actually ended up joining. And, and my final year, I was the director of the Campus Cinema, which is sort of what got me into this line of wow. work anyway. Yeah. 
That's so cool. I love that. I love that trajectory. So you were kind of already programming in Florida. Did you go anywhere else before you got to New York? Yeah. I mean, I lived in New York. I, I moved to New York, you know, right after college and got involved with this group called Ocularis that did a sort of weekly uh, film series in Williamsburg. Um, so that was all kind of volunteer run. And that's really where I learned a lot. Uh, you know, even any knowledge that I thought I had of film, it sort of went so much deeper, uh, mm. you know, once I was kind of exposed to what New York had to offer. Um, I lived in Boston for a little while too, uh, where I worked with this woman in film organization and I organized some screenings through them that would be a lot of like short film stuff. And I would do it wherever I could. Like I, you know, at like the library was, was a venue a gallery was or like an outdoor garden yeah. where, you know, I somehow convinced people for no money to like set up screens and projectors to wow. show movies. Yeah. So yeah, that's sort of what, where I've been. I, you know, when I started working for Alamo, I went to Austin for a few months. So I did get to program some movies at the Alamo in Austin. And it was interesting to share movies with a really different audience. Like the audience in Austin yeah. is so much different than New York. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. And I mean, that must have been really cool. Um, you know, once you had left Florida to kind of like, um, meet other people that were doing stuff that was similar to you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as should can and should happen for most people that move to New York, like you should show up and immediately realize you don't know shit, you know, and, <laughs> and, ha and then just kind of like start paying attention for a little while, you know, like, I think that was the important part for me was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I have ideas first. It was like, oh, wait, let me let me look. Let me see what's <laughs> going on first before I act all cavalier about like what, what I know. Yeah, you know, it, it was sort of like it, there was a lot to learn. And, and I was really happy to have New York as a resource for that. Nice. And I know you've you've been programming for over 20 years now. How much of that time has been programming in New York City? Um, most of it. I mean, I... Um, you know, the, the days at Ocularis, like I, I was working on a sort of like locally made short series. Um, and then, you know, I, where I really sort of like earned my stripes was uh 92Y Tribeca, a venue that no mm -hmm. longer exists, but was part of the 92nd street Y. Uh, mm -hmm. and they had opened this, I was there from the time they opened, which was 2008. Um, and you know, the, the venue space included a screening room as well as like a stage space and a gallery. Um, <clears throat> and so I, you know, basically kind of worked on the, the film program and that's where I, I really got to know a lot of people that I still work with, uh, mm. you know, and did a lot of programs, uh, as a start there. And, and, you know, that's where people kind of started to know who I was. Yeah. And yeah. that's amazing, by the way. And did you kind of at that time, did you have like a grasp of what like the repertory scene was like in the decades prior to you showing up? A little bit. I mean, I think that history gets lost a little bit, especially before there were, you know, was the Internet to kind of record everything. Right. Um, you know, so when it comes to programming, you know, even now it's like some things get lost, like pr things I programmed at night to I Tribeca, like they, that website doesn't really exist anymore, you know? Right. So I, I had more of an idea of what was going on, you know, it, the years closer to, you know, I mean, I, I first moved to New York in like the early two thousands or mm -hmm. in 2000. Um, 
and you know, I was a pretty avid moviegoer from the start. So I think I had an idea and that that's why when 92 I Tribeca opened, you know, for me, I thought New York was rich with repertory offerings, but Mm -hmm. it felt a little bit more academic, you know, and I wanted, I wanted it to be a little bit more fun or a little bit more edgy. And, you know, obviously a lot has changed since then because that that's, you know, there's a lot more young programmers in charge of, uh, you know, even the, the, the more kind of like art house focused theaters. So, mm. you know, you, that's why you get like film society, Lincoln center showing Rocky four and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> like that didn't right. seem like it was going to be possible in the early two thousands, but right. um, yeah. So, so that was sort of like originally, you know, what, what my sort of approach was and, you know, there's still, you know, there's more and more venues that are doing kind of more like putting horror more front and center, but it's still kind of like on the margins a little bit, you know? Mm, I see. Is that something that's kind of been like um, on your mind when, when you do your work over the years, like trying to get more, more eyes on that, on, on that genre of film? Sort of. I think I used to be a little bit more obsessed with showing things that no one else had shown and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just gotten to the point where there's so much competition and there's only so especially when you're looking for film prints, you know, like, oh, right. you know, there's only sometimes it seems like, well, how deep could you go or like what what else can be excavated? But there's always more, you know? Um, yeah, that that's interesting you say that because it sounds like, um, you know, without without anyone even saying it, you know, for someone like me who kind of like follows a bunch of different theaters, even like outside of New York you can just kind of see like the, the paper trail of a film print, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if, um, if master and commander, for example, uh, screened on 35 at the new Bev cinema, uh, I'll kind of see that and be like, Oh man, that'd be so cool if it played here one day. And then it's like two or three months later, it found its way here, you know, and maybe it stopped at the music box on the way in Chicago. And it's like, you can kind of get a sense of, um, there's a lot of places, you know, just in the country, not just New York, that are probably vying for those for those prints. Yeah. And, you know, there are definitely times if I've shown something that I hear from a programmer in another city, that's like, where did you get that? You know, and I do the same <laughs> thing, too. I, if I if I yeah. see something on someone's calendar, I'm like, I've been looking for that for years. Where would you get that? Right. You know? <laughs> That's cool. So is there is there something like a network there between like, uh, I guess, programmers and cinemas where there's kind of like a like a, you know what I mean? Like a like a friendly network where it's like, hey, you know, by the way, I've been looking for this print for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, there's actually there's a listserv uh, that we use where, you know, people kind of write like, does anybody know where this is? Does anyone know who has the rights? Uh, And there, you know, it, it hasn't happened in a while, but there was also you know, occasionally a sort of thing of like circuiting film prints, like let's say somebody was going to bring something in from overseas and it was mm-hmm. like, let's share the cost of of shipping by, oh, yeah. you know, kind of circuiting this across, you know, to different cities. Um, I love that. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah. And there is, you know, it hasn't happened in a while, but Art House Convergence was a, a you know, little thing for people to kind of meet up um it it was you know in park city it, was, it used to be kind of like pre sundance so i oh. even met some people in person 
uh, you know, other programmers and stuff. So yeah, it's, it is nice to kind of know people and have like a friendly relationship. And even with programmers in New York, like a lot of us know each other and there, there's sort of like, you know, it's not competitive. It's like a friendly sort of, uh, you know, atmosphere for yeah. us. Oh, you know, I love, I love to hear that. That I've always just been so curious, you know, cause you know, sometimes I can hear that it is, you know, no matter what, it, it is going to be very competitive, but, um, that's really cool that there is, um, you know, an alliance there, um, between, between everyone. That's really sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to Bobby B-Sides, quick question for you. How, when it comes to you drafting your picks for these four movies in the late rounds, you know, you have Hi Mom, you have Angel Heart, Midnight Run, and The Fan. Um, how do you approach, you know, which one of these should be a celluloid screening and which one of these should be a DCP screening? I mean, sometimes it's about what's available, you know? Okay. Um, Hi Mom, I actually thought didn't have a print available and had, but had a DCP. So I had originally kind of mapped it out to go with DCP and was told no DCP there is a 35 and I was like oh great mm. and luckily it ended up being a reprint and it was in good shape because you know you kind oh. of don't assume that especially for anything older right um, so yeah th- with this it really ended up being what was available the fan also does not have a DCP um, but you know I also it being sort of like a glorious scope movie i i I was i was happy to book a print of it what do you Um, mean by that by glory is that a a term for something or just no you know the the aspect ratio is is cinemascope so it's the widest Mm -hmm. screen format so you know being in our biggest theater that sort of like is an an amazing you know i'm sure that you've been in there for some scope movies Uh, and it's also like pretty flawless you know a lot of times Prints from the 90s, you know, can be in great shape, especially if they're not prints that get booked very much. You know, the fan isn't in like, you know, constant repertory demand. So it's in, right. still in really good shape. So I already looked yeah. at the print the other day and it looks incredible. It's pretty spotless. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Wow. Um. So, that's yeah. So, cool. so the way that it kind of worked out, uh, you know, Angel Heart did have a DCP and Midnight Run could have been film or DCP, but, you know, shipping prints is really, really expensive. So we do have to kind of pick and choose a little bit. Right. Um, so then I guess my follow up to that is, um, yeah. Okay. So like when I watched Hi Mom, you know, I was aware like, okay, it's a 1969 film and I'm watching it on 35. And I was like, I can't tell if this is uh, the original release print or not. Um, I mean, and I guess... Go on. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, um, and so, yeah, I was just curious, like, how often do you come across prints that are reprints? And like, you know, and, and what is that? What is that process like? Like, do do films get reprinted once every 10 years, every 20 years? Like, no, <laughs> I just assume if there's Prince. I just assume if it has scratches and pops like, oh, this must be the original print films rarely get reprinted. And you know, basically this sort of general thinking is movies, film prints that are from before 1982 will have fade. We'll have, you know, like almost inevitably any color film that was printed before 1982 is going to fade. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, you know, and if it wasn't reprinted and you're getting an original release print, it's going to look like shit. And we, we kind of don't book those. We we try to avoid booking those. The rule for me has been 
if a movie has a Blu-ray and only a shitty print and it has a DCP, then I'm going to go with the DCP because I'm not, I'm not going to show a shitty original release print just because it's film if it has a Blu-ray. If a movie, and this happens plenty of times, if a movie has never been restored, yeah. uh, I will show a shitty print, but I will be explicit about it. I, you know, if, I'll yeah. be like, this print is an, is an original release print. It's not in great shape, but this is also the only way that you can see this movie. You know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And you don't always know when there are reprints. You know, some distributors are straightforward and forthcoming about it. Uh, yeah. And a lot of them won't let things out if they're in bad shape. Um, mm-hmm. so, but a lo- also a lot of times they won't necessarily tell you, you know, <laughs> like they'll just be oh, like, Oh, yeah, interesting. We, yeah, we have it. You know, everybody has a different approach. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty rare for things to get reprinted. If, if Hi Mom was reprinted, it must've been for like an occasion, like, you know, maybe there was like a De Palma retrospective and, and he was involved and that, you know, right. spurred a reprint. Um, right. You know, yeah, especially these this day and age, like people are not making new film prints. It's pretty rare. You know, when it happens, it's, right. it's you know, a pretty deliberate decision. Um, yeah. But it because it's so expensive and because DCP is so prevalent, it's rare that you're getting like now newly struck 35 millimeter, you know. I guess that makes total sense when, because, um, you know, I, I always wondered why, you know, certain cinemas will make a big splash about, um, a newly struck print for something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, if someone like me who's not in the know, it's like, oh, well, why is that such a big deal? You just kind of assume, you know, it's easy or it's a little more normal. <clears throat> nope. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Got it. And um, also, I wondered if a movie like Hey Mom is technically available to only purchase on DVD, like that's the only physical media you can purchase it on. Um, why would it not have a DCP? Why would the DCP not be available if it's available on DVD or Blu-ray? Um, I mean, this also comes down to the distributors. You know, it if a Blu-ray exists, it is fairly easy for them to then just have a DCP available. But, you know, there is a quality control issue and not everybody wants to do that. You know, it, it probably would take minimal effort to just be like, okay, this Blu-ray exists now let's make a DCP. But a lot of times, you know, home video, you know, is, is done separately sometimes from the studio itself. So, you know, like vinegar syndrome licenses things from major studios. So mm-hmm. they might have done a scan and a Blu-ray of something. And, you know, I think then they do give those materials over to the, the studio, it's up to the studio if they want to make that available as the DCP or not, you know, and some will, but not always because there is still an extra step of effort and money and budget and yeah. stuff. So I imagine that the studios are kind of doing an assessment of like, are enough people going to use this right. uh, for us to like make the effort, you know? And when you say use this, we're basically talking about and I, I don't mean to like diminish this, but uh, a, like an exported file that you would then kind of use to play on a digital projector. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is, you know, I mean, even in thinking of like 4K and stuff like that, the idea is that the DCP would still be better quality than a Blu-ray. So it's not, you know, and I don't know, I'm not like a technical person. I, you know, I, I, right. I don't know like 
you know, I do know that it's easier and easier these days to make DCP, but there are quality control issues. So it's not like you just, you know, like it might seem like you just put throw it in the DCP-O-Matic or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> if you have like living filmmakers, they might want to be involved and have, you know, right. like sign off or whatever. So I, it's more complicated than just yeah taking a Blu-ray file and making it a, a thing that's on a drive that a theater can then blow up, you know, to screen size. Right, right, right. Um, and like you had said earlier, it, it is also just um, more affordable for a theater like Nighthawk to acquire a DCP. Is it a hard drive or is it is it like a file? Or These days there's it... more and more direct downloads. Uh, you don't necessarily re- receive a drive, uh, you know, but again, everybody's different. Some, a, a lot more people are converting to, you know, just having direct like download access. Uh, so yeah, okay. obviously it's cheaper than ch- ch- film weighs about 60 pounds, a total of like, you know, something that's like five to seven reels shipping that can cost like hundreds of dollars each way, you know? Yeah. So that's why, you know, we, we can't just show everything on film all the time, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, because there would just be no money, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) um, but also, you know, I mean, that, that's just, you know, sometimes, I I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody that like loves DCP or whatever, but sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it will do and, and, and it will look better than if a film print hasn't been taken care of, it'll look better, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and when it comes to, uh, the business of acquiring 35 millimeter prints, from my understanding, it sounds like there's three major ways to kind of go about it. And one is to directly communicate with the studios um, f- directly working with a film archive, uh, or having a connection with a collector. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that pretty much covers it. You know, I mean, sometimes I guess a resource might be a, a director themselves, you know, uh, that happens, you know, once in a while. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you're starting with the, the studio, the distributor. If they don't have it, you're looking at an archive or you're looking at collector lists. And then if you're like really going deep in, you're, you're going to write to the director and be like, is there any chance you have, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, a lot of yeah. times they don't, but, but some of them, you know, especially if they were a producer on the movie, they, they may have prints themselves. How many, uh, how many archives do you think you, uh, you work with on a regular basis? Um, there's about three or four that we, we kind of regularly get things from. And they're from, uh, they're domestic, like they're here in the States? Yeah, I mean, once you get into overseas shipping, it's just like prohibitively expensive these days to do that. Uh, so, so I've heard. Yeah, so since I've been at Nighthawk, I haven't done that. There were a couple times at Alamo, especially because we had so many locations, like there were times I could get something from BFI, the British Film Institute, because I could be oh, like, right. oh, I'm going to show this in New York. Will you, will you show it in Austin and San Francisco? You know, we had sort of a good triangle going of like the major cities um Mm -hmm. and that that was easy to do but you know i haven't tried to do that uh in a while so yeah we we keep it to the states for the most part yeah gotcha and um and collectors i mean that sounds like just so i don't know it's something about it seems so mysterious and fascinating to me like there, there are people that I don't even know where you would even buy these film reels. Like, like where would you even buy 35 millimeter? I mean, they're, is they're it... on eBay, but there are sort of like 
like listservs and stuff where, where people are listing things and, you mm. know, kind of trade amongst themselves or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, if you had to put a number to it, like how many like major collectors would you say there are out there that have 35 millimeter prints? Uh, I don't really know major collectors. Um, you know, I think that there are some that are that make their films more available than others do, and some also keep their their uh, inventory at archives. You know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they pretty it's like a storage place for them. They pay the film archive. To yeah, they house may not. E- they may not even pay them. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, even sometimes if you are writing to the academy, they'll say that they have a depositor print. You know. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to really put a number to it. I think that there's probably a lot. Gotcha. Okay, wow. That's so fascinating. Um, so you started at Nighthawk in 2021. Uh, were you? Did you start as a director of programming? Yeah, I mean, I you know was sort of on track with Alamo, and I only lost my job because of COVID, you know? Right. Uh, and they didn't end up replacing that position locally at Alamo. So... Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of experience. So when, when I was approached by Nighthawk, it made sense to, you know, have that title because I I, I was working towards yeah. it, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah, I get that. <clears throat> um, maybe like in some broad strokes, can you kind of describe like what, and maybe you already described most of it, like what kind of entails uh, in the job of a director of programming? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you're you're kind of plotting programming several months out. So, you know, uh, while also kind of like being ready for anything that's coming up, especially if you're doing something with the Q&A or an intro or something else. So, you know, there's like mo- your your brain has to kind of be in a lot of different places at once. It has to be mm. in the future and and you know, uh and <laughs> in the in the present. Um so, you know, there's a lot of research and, and it does involve kind of obsessing over details a lot. Um, mm. So, you know, research is a major part of it because you're kind of looking for ideas. You're looking for who's out there. You're looking, you know, yeah. what if there are anniversaries coming up, if there are mm. you know, filmmakers that maybe are local or, or accessible or want to do something, um, right. you know, and then, yeah, you're thinking as much as possible how to sort of build an event around it, you know, like, like it's one thing to show movies, but it's another to sort of like make it more of a collective experience. And it doesn't always have to be that way, but it's nice when it is. Right. Um, so and for, I kind of talked about that with Desmond in, mm-hmm. in the last episode, like I, I noticed and he kind of brought it up too, is for example, the, the great gowns, beautiful gowns, like you can kind of s- see the narrative, you know, like mm-hmm. the narrative arc in a program like that, where it kind of ends with, this big, you know, live drag show from Junior Mint at the end mm-hmm. of that film series. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just something um, that I didn't really notice before with rep programming, mm-hmm. you know, until recently, especially um, with, with what you all do in, uh, at Nighthawk. So I think that's really, really cool. And it kind of makes it, it does feel like an event. It's not, it's not like you're just going to see, you know, uh, something, you know, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know it, it's kind of that, and and then you know it. it, it I, I mean, I just say it's the research is sort of the most important part of it. I think, mm. and that's the thing that maybe people don't think about when they're like, "I want to be a programmer. I like movies," you know, and like <laughs> uh, understand like how much research is involved and how much sort of like 
getting turned down or, or getting like, you know, or not, or hitting a wall with like finding something like how much that, you know, that sort of factors into it and you have to kind of be ready for disappointment and and to like move move forward, you know, and to kind of know that you never know when something like something may not work at a certain point. It doesn't mean that you can't several years later be like, wait, is it time for this yet? Uh, You know? Mm, Um, Yeah. So, you know, I think that like having sort of a long career and sort of seeing over the years, like movies that I've shown that maybe when I showed them in 2010, nobody showed up, uh, you know, (laughs) 10 years later, all of a sudden kind of being like, wait, there is an audience for this. It just took a little while, you know? Yeah. Like you you had to, you needed, you had to give them a decade to find it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's so cool. I love that. Um, so, do you have like direct reports? Do do you have like do, do you handle like the, the the projectionist, for example? Like, is that something that you also have a hand in? Uh, I mean, we're kind of all more like a team, so it's not about being somebody's boss. Um, cool. <clears throat> you know, it, it's more kind of collaborating, and you know, we work with the projectionists. We're we're in close contact with them to make sure that. They have the information of like receiving prints. We, you know, we work with them to watch stuff in advance to know what the conditions are of, of certain prints mm. and stuff like that. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, we're more of a team, uh, you know, getting stuff together. Yeah. Everybody sort of has their roles and sort of knows what their jobs are. I love that. And, um, you know, having been, you know, you've been doing this for over 20 <clears throat> years. What is it about? programming for repertory that still excites you today um i mean i think for me it's you know there's just when i think i've seen even just seen every movie never (laughs) mind shown every movie there's always more you know and i'll Mm -hmm. get you know like like anyone i'll go through these dry spells where i'm kind of like uh like haven't i already done it all haven't i already showed everything (laughs) and then i'll watch something and i'll and i'll be like whoa this is insane you know i mean live wire the movie i just did for ridiculous to sublime is kind of like that like i had just watched it last year and and i was just like there's a film print of this movie this is insane Mm. and like you know so some i'm i'm pretty lucky in that i i haven't you know, been become jaded in, in this, like I, you know, and also the thing is there's always movies aging into sort of like cult classic dumb, you know, like, right. You know, it's kind of like as someone who started out like being really into showing movies from the seventies and then the eighties and then the nineties, then I was kind of like, you know, for me myself, I think that there were, it, I, I sort of need movies to age like wine so mm. like now the the vintage of the early 2000s is finally you know fresh enough for me to be <laughs> like oh this is good like let let yeah. let's go into this movie so yeah there, there's just always movies you know there yeah um, you know there's always going to be something to kind of dig up you know yeah i love that it it almost sounds kind of easy to kind of be re-inspired just because I hope I didn't make it sound easy because it is not easy (laughs) it's not easy there's plenty of times where I'm in like utter despair where I'm like do I even like movies like everything (laughs) I just like have it you know just like I watch things and I'm like this is terrible this is terrible this is terrible and do I like why do I do this 
Yeah, yeah. I'm mm. sorry. I have to make sure that it sounds hard because it's not. It's not easy. Okay. It's not. There's a lot of, of crisis course. of faith, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And um, in your time at Nighthawk, is there something that you've been most proud of when it comes to uh, a screening that that you've put on? Um, I just at the end of last year, uh, something I had worked on for a while was doing. Uh, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, with the director, Joe Berlinger, because it was a movie that he kind of famously had a very difficult time with, you know. Uh, right. Joe Berlinger is is like, you know, a very celebrated documentary filmmaker. He had made, uh, you know, this Paradise, uh, Paradise Lost trilogy. Um, he did the Metallica, some kind of monster documentary. Uh, mm. But Book of Shadows, it was, a, a you know... The, at the time, the only narrative that he made uh, kind of fresh off of, of Paradise Lost, and it was notoriously kind of taken away from him, and he was really upset about it. And I had reached out to him because I, I, you know, 20 years later, I was like, maybe he's ready to talk about this movie. And, yeah. you know, he at first was like a little dismissive, like, you know, I'm really busy kind of thing because, you know, now he makes a lot of Netflix series like he he had finally made a new narrative narrative movie in, in that uh, Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie. Um, right. So, you know, when I wrote to him, I, I had worked with him before. I had done screenings with him of Paradise Lost and Brothers Keeper. Um, so, you know, I reached out and he was kind of dismissive, but he didn't kind of close the door completely. So I, I was like, all right, like, let me give me, give him a minute. And I was just like, okay, well, what about now? You know? <laughs> and then he seemed to kind of warm up to the idea. <clears throat> so, you know, we set a date where he was going to come for the Q and a, and he ended up being really excited about it. And, you know, he watched the movie, like he sat through the screening. He said yeah. he hadn't watched it in many years and we did a Q and a, and, you know, I asked him if it felt cathartic and he said, yes. And, like that's that's fun for me because you know a lot of times yeah. you do Q and A's and directors like will do Q and A's endlessly and say the same thing over and over. <laughs> right. So to do a Q and A where the director is actually like into it is pretty fun, mm. you know. That's really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Thinking about like the future of rep screenings, uh, so, you know, we could talk about New York City or just in general. Um, what do you think the future is going to look like for rep screenings? Do you, I feel like, you know, what I'm hearing from several of the interviews I've had on this show uh, is that there is kind of like a, a new newfound, uh, you know, appetite or resurgence, especially from younger audiences for rep screenings. Um, what does that make you think about like the future of rep screenings? I mean, I think it'll continue in New York to be as it is, you know, I, I do think that New York is just sort of culturally, you know, attracts people that, that are, are looking to discover things and explore things. You know, um, it sounds like LA now has a really great film scene and, you know, I feel like we, we haven't always been equal in that. Um, mm. So I think that it'll, you know, it will continue to kind of like be the kind of thing that younger people are are going to like, you know, I'm always excited to see the audience like for older films, like wherever I go, whether it's Nighthawk or elsewhere right. to be younger. So I think that'll continue and, you know, the appetite will continue and there'll still be as many theaters and screens as there are. 
uh, and you know, hopefully 35 millimeter continues to be available. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that it's pretty healthy. That's great. And what, what sort of steps do you think should be put into place to kind of ensure that this continues to keep going on, not just from ticket buyers, but from people that are putting on the events, people that are trained in projecting 35, 16, 70 millimeter, people that are doing work similar to you as programmers and researchers and having those connections and just, um, you know, fostering that, that sort of um, community. I think just continuing to care about it, you know, like to make mm. sure apathy doesn't enter the equation in any way, you know? Um, and that just means that, you know, everybody involved, including the projectionists, like they need to care, you know? Right. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I gotcha. think that there just needs to be, you know, people just got to keep showing up and things need to be made available, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, is there anything uh, fun that you can kind of uh, tease for us that's coming up uh, in this year? Is, is there something that do you have a certain goal in mind for what you want to what you what you want to show at Nighthawk? Is there something that you know that you're, you're really striving for? Um, I mean, it's funny. Anytime anyone asks me what's coming up, I kind of like end up staring blankly because I'm working <laughs> on so many different things at, at a time. Yeah. You know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm excited about that, you know, it's a movie that sort of has been around as long as I've been programming and I've shown it from time to time and it kind of remains elusive because it, it can't ever be released on home video is this movie called the Beaver Trilogy that uh, Trent mm. Harris is the director of it. And he and I have been in touch over the years and, uh, you know, I was hoping to have him out at some point and he finally reached out and was like, I'm going to be in New York in, in, in April. Um, if you don't know the Beaver trilogy, it was, uh, I think it was finally kind of released in a, in its form in like 2000 or 2001. And it's three pieces, basically Trent Harris, uh, who's best known for this movie, Ruben and Ed, that Crispin Glover is in from the eighties. Um, okay. he was shooting some B reel and kind of stumbled on this guy in like a news you know, news production office parking lot. And this, this, he just ended up being this character that was like, come to my town. I, I perform as Olivia Newton, John. And so <laughs> the first part is this documentary uh, that involves kind of like going and seeing him perform at this talent show that he stages. The second part is Sean Penn, like sort of fast times at Ridgemont high era, Sean Penn reenacting, mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of Trent Harris then was sort of trying to write this as a script so you see Sean Penn kind of impersonating this person and kind of taking you through the story. <laughs> then the final one is Crispin Glover in kind of even a more sort of like manicured version of the story. Uh, and so Trent Harris kind of put them together as this trilogy. And mm. it's just like, there's kind of nothing else like it. It's just, you know, a really interesting way to sort of see like, you know, a real person kind of get morphed into, you know, these, these, uh, kind of like, yeah, to see a filmmaker kind of grappling with how to tell a story based on a real thing, see actors yeah. kind of cre recreating or impersonating a real person. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that's that's down in, over in April that uh, that just kind of came together. So that's at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> that's amazing. That sounds like a super unique experience. Yeah. And then other than that, you know, I mean, my two monthly series that I that I sort of host 
our Misfit Alley, which is kind of like an underground, like, like, you know, movies about women usually. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Ridiculous to Sublime, which, you know, the idea for that is movies that are just like very over the top, uh, you know, very bombastic, kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, I never, I never pitch things as being so good. They're bad. That's not my thing. I, um, for me, it's like, if you enjoy a movie, then it's good. You know, it, it, it doesn't need to be called bad. So Ridiculous to Sublime is kind of my favorite series because it sort of is the most fun with crowds. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. kind of mapping out the whole year of of those and, you know, trying to find some really wild stuff. Because I do try to find film prints of uh, for the for this series in particular. Because, you know, when I'm dealing with these movies, they probably don't have DCPs because they're kind of deep cuts, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. <clears throat> wow. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Christina, I just want to let you know again, I really appreciate you and, and I see you for everything that you do at Nighthawk. It brings so much joy to not just me, but uh, my friends, my family, and, and we just really love uh, the work that you and your team are doing there. So thank you so much. I'm so honored that you gave me your time today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks, Alec. I appreciate it. All right, Christine, this is uh we have Christine Gotti on the show today. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining me for this reaction segment of the podcast. We're reacting to the Robert De Niro retrospective, Bobby's World and Bobby B-Sides at Nighthawk. Welcome to Marquee Mixtape. Woo, thank you so much for having me, Alec. This is an honor, sincerely an honor. Is this episode five? Oh no! I think we're like on. This is episode eight now. Yeah, episode yeah, yeah. This, 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 this wow. is this is this is definitely episode eight. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely so. episode eight. No, it's great. Thank you for having <laughs> me. This is. I'm so excited to talk about Bobby's world yeah. um, and just Robert De Niro. Um, I know it's it's you. so easy. It's so easy to talk about Mr. Robert De Niro. He's in. You know, he's been making movies for over fifty years, which is. I don't know. Th- those are things I don't really like consider. But like when this retrospective came around, I was like, oh my god, that the man is like eighty. 80 years old now. He's 80 years old. He's, yeah. Yeah. He's he's uh, been nominated again at the Oscars uh, for Killers of the Flower Moon. And um, he's just like one of those figures that have like dominated, like not just the movies, but like home libraries too. like, you know, whether it was my own home or like my cousin's houses, you know, De Niro was in at least one or two, you know, VHS tapes or DVDs or, you know what I mean? Like he was, he's like in the home. He's a household name. Yeah. I mean, he is someone that is just so versatile. Like he does everything. Um, And also I feel like him particularly as a person um, in the projects that he is, that he has been, you know, a part of like Mm -hmm. these movies are just so like they range from just like comedy like you know uh uh thrillers um just mm-hmm. all sort of like across the board like he's such a versatile actor and yet he is such a private person too which i think makes him so alluring as well i didn't realize that i did not yeah. realize that until i started to kind of like you know over the course of this month i just kind of you know he was really on my radar because of you know covering Bobby's world, you know, for the podcast. And I didn't realize that he lived such a private life, like even amongst his own, like collaborators and friends, like, um, I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I think a lot of that air of mystery too is what makes him so appealing. And it always constantly surprises me when I watch movies of his that are like comedy um, and based Mm. in, you know, characters that are like completely like insane. And also just his comedic timing is incredible. Um, And just like he's an actor that always continuously surprises me. Um, And he's been in the industry for like how how long he's been acting since like the 60s um, oh since so, the 60s yeah yeah so just generally he's just someone that like constantly surprises me with every single role that he you know plays um but yeah a, a lot of it too is just the allure of like him you know uh working with martin scorsese and just kind of having such a long partnership with him a lot of my favorite movies are their collaborations um yeah and i think in terms of the uh Nighthawk series for Bobby's World, they did a great job of picking movies that are extremely popular, but also like movies that may have not been screened for a long time or people mm-hmm. may not be as familiar with. Um, but yeah, he's just such a versatile actor. Um, and I also yeah. think he's incredibly good looking. Um, and <laughs> I, uh, I'm just, I'm such a huge fan. I think he's incredible i think um, that's that's it's been so funny like like looking at some of the letterbox reviews for you know all of these movies of his and it's like yeah people people are lusting after this man you know <laughs> this 80 even at man. even at 80 even at yeah. 80 i i actually um uh i went to um tribeca film festival screening last year i um, mean they screened a bronx tale um nice and that's a, obviously a, a movie that he directed himself financed himself um mm-hmm. And I went with Doyen uh, mm-hmm. and we watched it at, um, I forgot, where did we watch it? Uh, we watched it. Oh, uh, the, it uh, was like a really cool theater or the Beacon Theater. Right? Yeah. The Beacon, Beacon Theater. And r- remind me, wh- where is the Beacon Theater? It's on the Upper West Side. Um, so get off right off 72nd. It's right there. Um, it's incredibly beautiful. And, um, and it's theater. not like a typical cinema, right? It's like multi-purpose is used for other things. Yeah, multi-purpose, the concerts, screenings, um, and it's it's also uh, when Tribeca was screening a bunch of their films there. Um, I think they they screen a bunch of things there every year, but it's definitely a multi-purpose venue, um, historical multi-purpose venue. But um, yeah, that's so cool. Um, I really need to see something at the Beacon. I remember when you and Dwayne went; I was, I was super jealous. I just didn't have time to go. But um, yeah. what what would what would you compare the Beacon Theater to? Like Ooh. what other theaters does what it kind of like theaters? fall under? Is it like a movie palace, like the United Palace? Uh, or... It's not. Um, I don't know if it was a movie palace before, but it definitely gives off like old movie palace um, kind of uh, like Lowe's theater yeah. vibes in terms of the the architecture and sort of the structure itself. Like yeah. it's very old. So there's red mm-hmm. seats. Um, seats are kind of tight. Um, um, and because it's so old, it kind of just has that air of like, NYC history to it um it's a very beautiful it's, it's actually pretty big too um but I'm not sure if it was a movie theater before it probably was maybe it was also a Broadway theater or kind of like a theater that also like showed plays and stuff but yeah. um yeah uh when we went to watch A Bronx Tale they also did a Q&A with Robert De Niro after the movie um oh my which gosh. was yes and he is he is a hard man to interview he is historically a very hard man to kind of interview because he's so yeah. His just demeanor is very like, I'll give you the answer and I won't kind of entertain really anything else, which is funny. Um, But he was he was super personable, I think, in this particular one, because he was so 
uh, proud of this project. And A Bronx Tale wasn't like a commercial success, um, mm. but he was so proud of it. And it was so like kind of just I was amazed just to see this man on stage. Um, yeah. Still kind of still kind of in the, you know, in the industry. And, you know, he's in Killers of the Flower Moon. Like he's just, oh, mm-hmm. God, I'm such a fan, Alec. I could go on and on. I don't I don't. That's awesome. You had the beacon. I got to get out there. And, you know, speaking of, you know, um, you know, other, you know, older theaters, um, the Nighthawk cinema, uh, specifically the one in Prospect Park, you know, it used to be the Pavilion Theater, um, you know, up until about 2018. And yeah. I was looking it up and I guess like that, that cinema has been around, not the Pavilion, just in general, like the, the mm-hmm. building for that cinema has been around since 1928. So we're wow. kind of approaching the 100, 100 anniversary of like that building. Um, I should look up like if it started out as a cinema or, or like a stage theater yeah. or something, but it is pretty amazing that um, whenever you see a movie at the Nighthawk uh, in Prospect Park, it's that establishment has been there, you know, that that building has been there for almost a hundred years. And it's still a theater. I'm just glad that it's still a theater and not like a TD bank or something, you know, like it's. Oh my gosh, oh I know. God. And I, even when I walk <laughs> in, I like see the elements of an old theater, like the staircases. Yeah. Just Those like tall height, ceilings. The tall ceilings. Um, yeah. And it's just so beautifully modernized too. I feel like yeah. it's, um, in terms of its use now, like just, I, I, because I, I don't often go to this Nighthawk. It's usually Williams, mm-hmm. the Williamsburg location. But right. when the, I think the last movie that I saw there, or the first movie I ever saw at Nighthawk was Shoplifters. And it was just with Yeah, Jeremy. same. Um, and that is the only time that I'd ever been there up until recently. Um, so, oh, so going you have, back. So, oh, wow. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So awesome. I kind of was away from my mind for a little bit. And then when I came yeah. back, I was like, wow, I forgot how beautiful this theater is. Like the screening room is where we saw, you know, yeah. the fan last night. Our it's movies. like great. Um, God, it's so big. Um, and just in general, like the, the, it that keeps the elements. Um, it didn't, they didn't like tear anything down. Um, yeah. And they just like beautifully modernized it too. Um, yeah. So, so your purpose. first time. Your first time at that Nighthawk was 2018 for uh, Shoplifters. That the, I saw that movie there too. So that was actually one of their first. That was definitely part of their first new releases. Oh wow! Um, when they ha- when they had their grand opening in I December didn't even of 2018. Know that. Yeah. So y- you guys must have gone because you must have heard that it was you know a new Nighthawk location or something. Um, because I just specifically remember Shoplifters was like. It was like that first round of movies of new releases at the time. I didn't even I didn't even know that they opened in 2018. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just kind of was like, this movie looks really good. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I want to see, um, and it was showing at Prospect Park. And yeah. I was like, why don't we just go somewhere new? Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was an incredible film. But mm-hmm. um, just going into the location, I was like, just surprised at just how beautiful and kind of it's a it's more, much more bigger than the one in Williamsburg. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'd been to the Williamsburg one a couple of times. Um, yeah. I remember um, last year you and I and, and Jeremy and, and Angeline, we all saw the game there. Uh, David Fincher's the game on 35 millimeter. Yes, we did. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was a great <laughs> film. So funny yeah. that you mentioned that because a coworker of mine, um, she's from the Bay area as well. Her dad oh, cool. was in the movie. What? Um, yeah, as an actor, played like one of the bartenders. Um, oh, you know what? I'm I just was... seeing the link right now. That movie is SF 
based. SF right? and yeah. the fan is SF. Yeah, based. and the fan is too. Wow, look at that. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Williamsburg one is also a great location too. Um, you can also rent rooms yeah. there, which is which is fun. My job actually yeah. rented a room there for um, a coworker of ours that was um, going on maternity leave, and she had like a baby shower there, and she rented a room, and we watched Almost Famous, um, <gasps> which was oh nice. my gosh, um, yeah. I haven't seen that in a minute. That's that was a really fun movie. I remember. Love that movie. Um, but just in general, <laughs> Nighthawk is such a. I, I love what they're doing with all of this programming. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like with Bobby's World too, again had sort of the perfect balance of uh, movies that may have not been as popular uh, or not as screened right. or people may have not have heard of. Um, in comparison to really popular ones like Goodfellas and Godfather Part Two. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll actually I'll, I'll go down the list of what what they played this month. You know, so yeah. it all started um, January third, and the last screening is actually tomorrow. Um, so this is what they played for Bobby's World. And Bobby's B-Sides. They played The Godfather Part 2 on 35mm, Goodfellas on 35, High Mom yep. on 35, Cape Fear on 35, Mean Streets on 35, Angel Heart, Casino on 35, Taxi Driver on 35, The King of Comedy, Midnight Run, Analyze This, Jackie Brown on 35, Raging Bull, It's 4K Restoration, The Fan on 35, Tonight They're Playing The Deer Hunter on 35, and tomorrow, the climactic ending. And I just love the way they, they create this narrative in the programming. It all ends with Heat, the 4K restoration at Nighthawk Williamsburg. Oh, that's so cool. I wish I, oh God, I wish I could watch it, honestly. It's, uh, that one sold out really fast. I, I remember I did when the see that. It, I checked, I checked. Yeah, and it was, seats were taken and I was disappointed, but it's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, the first time I watched Heat was last year. I have I hadn't seen it. Um, what made you want to watch it? Uh, I think I just was like perusing through again, like his filmography and Jeremy yeah. had seen heat before and he had always recommended it to me. And I just, mm-hmm. I didn't actually sit down and take the time to like proactively like watch it. Um, but I watched, I think it's, it's on Netflix. Um, um, just, Oh God, what a, so good. <laughs> I wish I saw it in theaters. I wish I, I wish I, I could get tickets for this particular screening at Nighthawk, but it's okay. Um, I'm glad that they're ending with heat because man, what a movie, yeah. <laughs> what a movie, what a cast. And it's like, it's one of my favorite movies that like depicts Los Angeles too. Um, right. because like it's, it's, there's so many scenes that are like right there in, in downtown LA. And it's like, I have so many memories of downtown LA, you know, growing up there as a kid. And, um, yeah, I just like, it's it's one of the few times when LA kind of like um kind of like has that that big scope about it when you're when you're in downtown and i just love the way that it was shot down there and especially the sound design for that terrifying shootout scene oh my it was so oh extensive if i could yeah, talk about extensive, that yeah extensive yeah so extensive <laughs> the from start to finish um just the sound design for that too. And we kind of just have basic uh, speaker here for our TV. Like it's nothing mm-hmm. too fancy, but even then like the sound really came through. Yeah. Um, God, it's a testament so... to like the original sound design of the movie. God. And who directed this again? Michael Mann was Michael. Yeah. Mann? Michael yeah. Mann. Oh, like Man. 
masterfully shot, I must say. Oh yeah. Like, um, oh, yeah. and the diner scene too is uh, oh man, incredible between Pacino <laughs> and and De Niro. Just yeah, so magnetic yeah. to like so to magnetic. see those two figures, you know, like sharing the same frame, right? Just a single frame of yep. them two, like locking eyes, like. Yeah. Oh man. And there was so a, like awesome. improv mixed in there as well, I think. Um I was mm, like reading about I didn't it. Know that. And I, yeah, and I was like, man, you're you're talking about the two greatest living actors of cinema <laughs> just like in this scene. Like it's just like like masterful acting, I think. Um but just that, in general, that, heat is oh, oh yeah. What a film. So yeah. what was what was your first De Niro movie? Do do you remember like what was your what was your introduction to Robert De Niro? My first De Niro movie, if we're talking very first, yeah, like like I think it you, was Goodfellas. I think yeah? it was Goodfellas. Yeah, and I was a, I was a child. Um, oh, <laughs> I, I I should not have been watching that as a child. Um, but my dad is a huge movie buff too. Yeah. Um, he actually <laughs> rented it from. So I grew up in Queens, um, in mm. Elmer's Queens, and there was a video rental store. Um, that was not blockbuster. It was it was actually Filipino owned. Um, nice. And my dad knew like you know the the employees. Um, he had like a mm-hmm. rapport with them, super friendly. Um, yeah. And he would just rent, you know, tapes um, from there, m- movies. What was it called? Different kinds. It was called Jeffily. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I think it's spelled J E F F I L I. But it was just a small video store in Elmer's Queens, and my dad would go there. And he rented Goodfellas, um, and he just like rented all different kinds of movies. Um, he didn't Which really care too much about VHS, DVD. We're talking VHS. We're talking. Oh, yeah, VHS. This is like a proper like 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 you yeah. know video rental store. Video rental store, like it's like you know Blockbuster, just kind of all of those video rental that that era era of like you would. Yeah, go but this in. was Jeffily. This was Jeffily. This was like a yeah. small business. Um, and it, it, like, I just remember going into that store and going into just seeing all of the movies like on the shelves and not being able to reach the ones that I like wanted to look at. And like my dad would, you know, reach, you know, reach for me and like just very vivid kind of visceral memories of him just reading through like movie summaries in the back of a VHS, you know, kind of asking the employees, like, what do you think of this? And they would have like employee picks too. And so they'd have, you know, employees, you know, kind of like if you go to Barnes and Nobles or a bookstore and they have employee favorites of the month or something. I love staff picks. Staff picks are always my favorite. Yeah. And so my dad, you know, would, you know, go through, you know, that portion of the store too. It was just like such a, a, place for me that like sparked so many memories and I think sort of where it like begins my love of like film and so my dad also was like he never really like held back on the kind of movies that he would rent so they'd be kind of violent so I like saw Scarface yeah. when I was seven nice. uh, I, I and so Goodfellas like, extremely violent movie um in oh, terms yeah. of just the depictions and like the scenes and um uh, I I was like eight years old I think when I saw that so that was sort of like my first foray into I guess Robert De Niro and I wasn't really fully aware of him as an actor but just as in terms of the first film I've, I'd ever seen of him in it yeah. that was the first so I'm glad that was so my like, first movie <laughs> yeah so, so basically w- whenever you had seen like you know other De Niro films after that you probably must have been like oh that's the guy from Goodfellas yeah, that's the guy from Goodfellas exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's so and funny. then I, I recognize so the name Martin Scorsese at like 
age eight, like, cause I would always like read the back of, you know, the movie summaries and you'd see sort of the credits at the end of like directed by yeah. produced by starring, you know? So that right. was, um, yeah, just sort of my first film, which I'm really glad that it was Goodfellas. Um, what yeah. a, what an entrance into the world of Robert De Niro. Uh- <laughs> it's so funny. I, I, I remember, um, you know, analyze this and meet the parents. They kind of came out within, you know, three yeah. years of each other. It was like the late, it was 1999 for analyze this. And it was something like 2001 or something like that for, for meet the parents. And yeah, I mean that, that to me was an explosive introduction to an actor who like my parents and my, you know, all the, the, you know, adults in the family, they had an adoration for him, you know, like they took us to go see these movies, you know, they were excited to rent these movies, um, or to purchase and own these movies, you know? Um, and, uh, and I just thought they were, they were funny movies. Right. But I didn't re I didn't realize that like, you know, like my, you know, the, the, the adults in the family were, they had been longtime fans of, you know this funny guy i thought he was a funny guy <laughs> he's i love like, that so- <laughs> our, our both of our experience vastly different like i watch goodfellas um and which yeah. is he's funny in that too in his in like obviously a an ironic kind of you know sense but then it's like analyze this where it's like he's full-on like yeah his comedic chops like are oh fully gosh. demonstrated in that movie but it's so funny how like yeah. You got comedy De Niro and I kind of got. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ma- mafia, mafia. Violent De Niro. mob violent. boss. De Niro. Exactly. Like, <laughs> m- murderer De Niro. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it's just it's just so it's so amazing um, how, you know, somebody like De Niro can have, you know, uh, can, you know, be a master of, you know, all of those different types of, uh, you know, roles, you know, being. Uh, such a master at be- being a, a comedic actor and then of course being you know a, a dramatic actor um you know re-watching so you know uh kind of like watching some of these films from the bobby's world series again i didn't realize that you know a lot of his early career was kind of defined by playing uh, Vietnam veterans. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah. something I didn't really think about, you know, because I, I hadn't watched those movies, you know, from the seventies, his movies from the seventies. I haven't watched those movies since I was in high school. Like I, I remember learning about film in high school and being like, Oh, I really gotta, I gotta go watch these classics that everyone talks about. So I had, so, you know, having Bobby's role at Nighthawk was a really great opportunity to kind of like, um, revisit those movies that I yeah. really just saw one time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so getting to see Taxi Driver, you know, on the big screen, on 35 millimeter. Oh. I took Andrew to that one, which was really great. Um, what did you think? What did you think of this revisitation of uh, Whew, man, Taxi Driver? Um, it was absolutely chilling uh, because, you know, after, you know, 15 years, like I don't remember every detail about it. I, it's not a movie I really thought about. Um mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, dude, Taxi Driver was, that was a chilling experience um, just because I thought a lot about, you know, incel culture in general, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, people that are, you know, uh, you know, mentally ill folks. Uh, it's a shocking you know. movie. It's a shocking, jarring movie. Um, yeah. And I can imagine yeah. at the time when it was released, how I pro- it probably was extremely controversial just in terms of characterization i mean it's also i can't even imagine violent 
Jodie Foster yeah. also was like 12 years old in that movie, I think. Um, she yeah. wasn't even a teenager. Yeah. So just so many elements of it being like incredibly controversial, like um, yeah. for the time. Um, and you're revisiting this too, like now. Um, and yeah. you're probably like, there's so many like new things you've probably discovered since probably your first viewing of the movie. Um, yeah, thousand percent. You know, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a movie that you know simultaneously feels like uh, a warning, you know, yeah. to kind of mm-hmm. like uh, to society in general to mm-hmm. like you know, um, you know, not not leave people uh, on on the wayside, you know, and and not to ignore you know things like mental illness and you know, um, yeah, I don't know because. Uh, yeah, in that sense, it felt like this is a warning of, you know, what could happen, you know, and in the movie, mm-hmm. it's like, he spends so much time, you know, preparing to do the worst thing imaginable, which is, you know, uh, a public assassination, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and he ends up not doing it. And, uh, you know, does something else that's terrible, you know, he still, com- he still commits a, a, another violent act, um, and ends up saving Jodie Foster. But then it's like the media you know ironically is like painting him as like a city hero and it's like oh yeah. my god like guys like <laughs> you know like this this is crazy like this is like a, a weird sick cycle you know what i mean like like who knows you know if he's going to snap again you know what i mean yeah. so in that sense you know it feels almost cynical or nihilistic but at the same time yeah. it could be seen as a warning sign you know yeah. so it was very chilling to to revisit that but um i'm glad i did and you know, it was also really cool to like see a movie like Taxi Driver that is, you know, so, you know, um, undeniably, you know, a New York City movie to be mm-hmm. able to see that in New York. That's City one of my really favorite. Cool that's one of my favorite parts of it, actually, too, um, in terms of just like the real time setting of 1970s mm. New York, which I feel like um, if, you know, you're a New Yorker, you know, the 1970s New York was, it was an extremely dangerous uh, place to, to live in at the time, like sort of the city right. was not... Um, economically um functioning great mm-hmm. um there's a lot of violence um which also as i'm i love new york city history so whenever i watch taxi driver and i see sort of him driving through times square with whatever yeah. Times square used to look like yeah um, all those marquees the triple x marquees. marquees yeah exactly it just is so it's such a jarring thing to see i think um yeah. uh and just in general, um, the setting of the movie too, I think, just plays so so well into, uh, you know, Travis Bickle's just diminishing psyche. Um, yeah. So I just think that uh, in terms of both the the setting, um, the way that it's also shot, the soundtrack, the score. Um, yeah. It's so funny. I listen to the score sometimes. It's like one of my favorite movie scores. Um, nice. I think uh, the composer for it was Bernard Herman, and he like did a bunch of movies, old golden age yeah. kind of cinema scores. Right. Um, but this one in particular is just so good. It's so jazzy. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever it's raining on the train, sometimes I listen to it. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, it's, it's 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 such a good soundtrack. Probably one of my favorites. But just all of the elements of this movie in general just make it yeah. one of my favorite De Niro movies. And it was also sort of a introduction to De Niro again for me because I rewatched Taxi Driver in college um, for like mm. one of my film classes, um, and I was just so like engrossed in it. Um, 
I also have yeah. like a taxi driver poster like next to me. I can't take it out oh, right nice. now, but it, again, like <laughs> uh, I'm so jealous that you got to see that too um, with Andrew um, in 35 millimeter. Yeah. So what movies did you end up seeing at this film series? So I got to see Midnight Run, which I've never seen before. I'd heard of it, um, but I just had never again proactively went out of my way to like see it. And then when I saw that it was part of the the series, I was like, let's go. Um, I'm so ex- <laughs> I was so excited. Um, and then I watched The Fan with you um, last mm-hmm. night. Um, two incredibly different movies. Um, but God, Midnight Run was probably just uh, one of my favorites uh, so far in terms of just like his more comedic roles. What um, made you choose that one? How long had it been on your watch list? It had been on my watches for a while. Actually, I I saw the um, on Paramount Plus that they were showing it, but then I was like, oh, I'd love, I kind of want to see this movie if, if, you know, it would be screened like a theater or something. Um, and then you sent me the uh, Instagram post for Nighthawks, uh, Bobby's World, Selected Works. And I was like, this is perfect. They're showing Midnight Run. Um, so why not take the opportunity to go and see it, you know, on the big screen um, instead of just watching it on streaming? Um as I'd heard that it was sort of, uh, it was a commercial critical success. Um, mm-hmm. And I also love Charles Grodin. Um, he's a great comedic actor as well. I don't know. He's in the Beethoven movies. <laughs> yeah. I um, grew up on that, actually. I love I, the uh, Beethoven Yes. I, yeah. I used to have Beethoven 1, the first Beethoven. on. I used to have it on VHS. I watched it all oh, the time. And um, So sweet. Yeah. So, the actor's name was Charles Grodin, right? Yeah, Charles Grodin. Um, yeah, dude, that passed away. That so but funny. in terms of, he's so funny. So, and he's like a kind, the kind of funny that's like very subtle. Like he's not, yeah, straight up um, physical comedy. It's mm-hmm. the way he delivers a lot of his lines. Oh yeah, it's sort of that like sarcastic, ironic, um, comedy, which I really like. Um, yeah, and so. It was, is- yeah, it, it was so one of a kind, um, his comedic style. And there's still so many of his films that I, I really need to see, including Midnight Run. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm really, I actually just got tickets to see. You should come with me. I'm, I'm going to go see The Heartbreak Kid. Oh, God, I haven't seen The Heartbreak Kid. Yeah. That and is you know, on that, my too. Yeah, that, that, that one, I'm pretty sure is not available to stream anywhere. And it's really hard yeah. to buy in physical media. I don't know why. But yeah. um, but anyways, it's gonna not to, you know, go off track. But it is no, playing at good. the Museum of the Moving Image, um, sometime soon, like in the next month or two. So, yeah, Charles Grodin, that's cool. so awesome. Um, what did you think of Midnight Run? Midnight Run, I think, in terms of, uh, it's funny because uh, De Niro also plays a violent guy as well. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because he's he's more of like a a bounty hunter in this one. Mm. Um. Like he was like a former cop, um, but I think uh, in this movie he uh, helps find, I guess, like people who are also criminals and uh, gets money out of doing that um, for like an agency or something. Um, it was it was so funny because uh, when he uh, when he first meets Charles Grodin, like that in general like he sneaks into his like apartment that is a very very funny scene by the way but sort of their first meeting um and i don't want to give anything away but charles grodin has a fear of something in this movie and robert dino doesn't believe him um but then it just turns out to be just one of like the funniest uh most unintentionally funniest scenes um that i probably have ever seen it's not just robert de niro who's incredibly funny in this but like when he's paired up with an actor that's also like 
so good at comedy as well. It just when you marry yeah. the two, they just it's it's kind of like not even a buddy cop kind of like element yeah. to it. It's just like they have both two completely different goals in the movie. And then at the end, obviously, like they end up getting along, but just the the differences in character for both of them just made for it to be like probably one of my favorite um kind of duo movies that Robert De Niro has done. How was uh how was the audience? The audience uh, was cracking up. Um, it actually wasn't a full screening. Like, it wasn't like a full house. Um, mm-hmm. But there were scenes in the movie in particular, which um, I also read were also improv by Robert De Niro as well, where I feel like got the most laughs. And it's usually when Robert De Niro <laughs> is like incessantly screaming on the phone about doing something, killing this person um, and yelling at the phone <laughs> at another person. And it's just, uh, God, it's just like a, a whole like conglomerate of, of, Robert De Niro yelling and being funny um, and also panicking and having just a shared sense of just like, I have so much animosity towards Charles Grodin right now. He's so irritating, but I also can't help but love the man too. Like he just like, like balances that so well. Um, But I'm so excited. I I rented this on, on my TV. So I'm I'm really excited to check this out soon. Oh, you rented it? Yeah, since I couldn't get around to seeing it, um, I was like, I still got, I got to watch this. This is my time. I, I got to see this movie. It's been on my watch list for so long. I love both those actors, and um, so yeah, I look forward to, to to watching it soon. But that's that's so funny. Um, yeah, he he definitely has like a <laughs> he's a violent. You know, he has played so many violent roles. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah, and, even and in like this in, comedy, <laughs> right? And analyze this too. So he's also a violent man but like he seeks therapy because he has anxiety like how crazy is that plot so it sounds like a real crowd pleaser to watch like on the big screen you know it is and then obviously like too when you're like watching it at home I feel like if I watched it at home I probably would have laughed a little less but because I was in a room full of people who uh, were laughing at the same things I was I just the environment just kind of you know Uh, just led into just like hysterical laughing. Like I was, I was dying. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do love seeing a movie, like going to see like a rep screening for a movie that I've never seen, but yeah. the audience is so into it. It's like, you know, this is one of their favorite movies or like, this is something they've seen a million times, but you know what I mean? That they want to yeah. see it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so, so nice fun. to laugh with a crowd. Like I saw King of Comedy as well, a screening of King of Comedy. And it was this also- month. The, not this month. It was uh, when did I watch it? Probably like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, where did we watch King of Comedy? Metrograph. M- Metrograph. Yeah. So oh, gotcha. I watched King of Comedy at Metrograph, and it was also a pretty full house too. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like uh, him being the crazy kind of stalker, <laughs> um, Rupert Pumpkin. Uh, and it's so funny I, because I the still fan need to see that one too. You haven't seen King of Comedy? <laughs> I know. That they're, oh they're, my I, gosh, you're going to love it. It's one of my favorites, Alec. Like I can't express enough. I can't how, wait. I, I want to rewatch it too. So if, you know, they show it again sometime, yeah. I'd love I'd love to to join you. That that's um, one I'm always looking for like on the big screen too. I feel like that one always there's people always turn up for that one. Yeah. Um but hopefully um you'll you'll be able to watch it soon cuz I I, mm-hmm. I really want to hear what you think about that. Um it's so funny yeah. too because he plays a stalker in that movie and also mm-hmm. a stalker in the fan, which is an, another movie. Oh that... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fan, yeah, that that was a crazy one. We saw that one last night, and um, I was, I think, I was mostly excited at the fact that it was, you know, mid '90s De Niro. 
with like uh, Wesley Snipes and yeah. direct, directed by Tony Scott. Like I love Tony Scott and um, you know, m- most of the Tony Scott films I saw were like from the late nineties through, yeah. you know, the time he passed in like the early 2010s. Um, so there's still a lot of Tony Scott films from the eighties and the nineties. I hadn't seen this one. I didn't even know existed. So I was like super down to go see this and uh, really excited that it would be screened on 35 millimeter too. Um, and oh my god, <laughs> I know it, it, we, it's we, also we just laughed a, a lot during that. <laughs> we really did. I feel like we were the loudest ones laughing. Yeah, like we were probably the loudest people in that theater. I, I mean, yeah, I was. Movie, it was hysterical. Yeah, um, it was so unhinged. Like I was not ready for the level of you know unhinged that movie. <laughs> it's was also just so aspect. sometimes like when you're in it, it like it feels so convoluted. Um, yeah. In terms of like the plot, um, mm-hmm. especially I, I think we were talking about it last night, like especially the ending. Um, I just did not think that it would play out that way. I think I told you, too. I was like, oh, I thought maybe he would befriend Wesley Snipes. And then slowly Wesley Snipes would realize, oh, this guy is kind of insane. Yeah, maybe maybe I maybe I need to back off because that was sort of what the trailer was giving. I, I did watch the trailer on YouTube because I I'd never heard of the fan. Um and I was like, oh, uh, this movie is where Robert De Niro probably just slowly devolves into, you know, someone that just becomes gradually obsessed with Wesley Snipes. But then the movie kind of just like picks up on it like right away. Um, and he just <laughs> he, I, I don't want to spoil it for people who will actually you yeah, know, listen yeah, yeah. to this, but um, right. he really went from crazy throughout the whole thing. Like there wasn't even mm-hmm. any devolvement. It was like, yeah, right from the start of the movie. Um when he's driving in that big van of his towards the end. <laughs> the SF where, Giants van. <laughs> the SF Giants fan towards the end where the, um, a particular scene happens at a baseball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't really need to end like that, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. What a wild, what a wild movie. Um, that a was wild a movie fun. of rolling. I had never heard so much Rolling Stones. Oh my God. That soundtrack was great. Yeah. yeah soundtrack to was combine great. those two. <laughs> God, I was like, wow, they, he really, Tony Scott really just utilized so much music in this film. Um, yeah. To, for both, I think, uh, comedic effect, too. I think it was it's sort of, again, like, ironically funny because, mm-hmm. like, oh, he's, like, obsessed with baseball and the Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> and we don't, what's interesting, too, is that we don't learn too much about his character's background either. Like, yeah. There are no flashbacks or there's yeah. no, like. Yeah, he was just always, of, like, this crazy fan, you know. This crazy fan. And you kind of don't know where he comes from. You just know that he's a dad. Um, yeah. He is uh divorce from his wife yeah. i think he's divorced he's from a bad his wife dad too. he's a bad terrible dad terrible yeah. terrible worker um, yeah yeah um, he like you know his his father like started that rude. business <laughs> yeah <laughs> so rude and i was i was laughing at the part too where um he's at the baseball game with his son mm-hmm. and it's so interesting too because sometimes when um it's a scene between like a dad and a son and they're at a baseball game um Obviously, like they're getting along, like they have, you know, they have a certain uh, there's like a certain chemistry that's going on there. And then like yeah. throughout the scene, it's just like his son looking at him like he's completely asinine. Like and he's also worried about his dad, too. Like you could totally see his face as <laughs> they're watching the game. And Robert De Niro is like, you know, screaming at Bobby. Yeah. And he's like telling people in the back who are telling him to sit down to like shut up that like his son <laughs> is like, this guy needs to calm down. Like, dad, yeah. please. Um, but. Uh, 
Yeah, definitely just uh, I had never, ever experienced a Robert De Niro film in this way or, or just yeah. sort of uh, unhinged from start to finish. Um, what was funny is that like, you know, at first I thought that and then as the movie went on, I was like, wow, this is actually a role that is like cousins with, you know, Taxi Driver. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Because, and it, you know what I mean? It's It's almost as if like the fan is the way I said you know, taxi driver is kind of like a warning. You know, the fan is also a warning for like toxic fanboy culture. I I know, right. And it's so, it's like toxic fanboy culture. And also just like, uh, this is what happens when a stalker ends up integrating themselves into someone's life. Um, (laughs) and obviously like he goes about it in the most like, again, insane way. Um, yeah. But it's just like a, an interesting kind of just lens to look through when you're mm-hmm. um, you're talking about people's sort of obsessive tendencies and how that sort of like devolves into, you know, you know, danger um, and yeah. violence. Um, and it's funny that like sort of a lot of his like roles like this one, like again, you'll see King of Comedy soon, but you'll kind of see like, a mm-hmm. lot of the similarities in between like obsessive tendencies and stalker tendencies and just sort of devolve into these kinds of just insane violent situations um but again it speaks to again the mental health of a lot of these characters and i I never realized that too like sort of thematically like these are the kinds of characters that he plays um, yeah in certain films um exactly i mean that that's that's what i love about um retrospectives in general right um yeah I, i i haven't really um you know, gone this deep, like on a retrospective before. So this was a really fun experience to like, um, really use the film series, Bobby's world and Bobby B sides as like a, you know, kind of like a case study in a sense of just like, you know, really diving into this one actor and, you know, the roles that he chose to play and how those roles kind of like shaped his career, you know, over 50 plus years of, of making movies. Um, so yeah, watching all these movies, I can kind of see those those thematic ties, you know. And I just thought that was really interesting. I, that that was the really the the fun part of kind of participating uh, in a retrospective. Um, mm-hmm. You you definitely, for me at least. I mean, I I think for both of us, we 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 took away you know a, a lot um, a lot of you know new information, you know, new findings, you know, from from De Niro. Um, yeah. You know, we saw the fan in 35 millimeter um, and, you know, last last year we saw the game on 35 millimeter. Um, is there anything about seeing a movie at a cinema on on any type of celluloid film, whether it's 70 millimeter, 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter? Is yeah. there anything that stands out for you? Anything that you appreciate about that? Yeah, I feel like there's such vast differences, obviously. Um, and I think... Um, the color is so much more vivid mm. there's just like a certain way that 35 millimeter looks um especially for the fan and it's also because it's tony scott he kind of has all these crazy shots overhead mm-hmm. shots um especially like at the baseball game um and at the during like the the baseball scenes in particular um mm-hmm. just the color feels so rich and it feels sort of um visceral in a way like you could touch it um mm-hmm. And that's something that I particularly saw when I was watching the, when we were watching the fan last night. Um, and I noticed I did notice some sort of like breakage or like sort of the um, scratches um, 
throughout some of the scenes kind of like um uh, especially with 35 millimeter or in film in general like sometimes mm-hmm. um when it's uh uh I, I can't describe it it's like the material seems scratchy but also yeah, very yeah, rich yeah. at the same time so it feels yeah. very raw um, yeah. in a sense where like digital feels very streamlined and kind of perfection or like perfected mm-hmm. in a way so right. definitely like i definitely see like so many of the vast differences between like celluloid film versus like digital um but in terms of um the fan i think um watching it on 35 millimeter definitely uh also changed the way that the way it felt changed the way that i viewed it because it felt modern but also Mm. of the time but it also just felt like so much more rich in color yeah Um, and obviously Tony Scott has you know, his way of shooting things. Oh my um, gosh. So kinetic. Yeah. Like there's so, so much kinetic like... and frenetic. It feels like, yeah. like chaotic in a way. Yeah. Like the camera, oh, absolutely. The camera isn't necessarily shaky. Um, and the cinematography yeah. isn't necessarily shaky, but he uses a lot of cuts, a lot of tilts, a yeah. lot of like kind of zoom ins um, mm-hmm. as well. And so when he combines all of that, um, it just feels, it feels like you're in um, Robert De Niro's world or in his mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it definitely, uh, I feel like if I didn't see this film in 35 millimeter, I probably would have had a different, ex- a vastly different experience, I think. Yeah, um, it was also, I was really happy that they they screened it in the Nighthawk Prospect Park's um, larger auditoriums. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I don't know, there's something about the, the scope of that movie. Um, just seeing certain shots that are like close-ups, especially yeah. on Wesley Snipes, you know, those close-ups on yeah. Wesley Snipes, like, he just had such a presence, you know, such um, a presence. On, on the big screen, like, you know, his, his face, his eyes, you know, it just like, it looks so good, like on, on that big screen and, you know, on 35 millimeter. Um, yeah. And that guy, that guy was such a movie star. You know, I, I really, I really love seeing um, Wesley Snipes in, in movies. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love, I, the, I love the past tense use of was. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know <laughs> I haven't seen him in a movie in a minute. I know, but, you know same here. You know, he's still here. a movie star. <laughs> I mean, but he was like, so you know he mean? was so ubiquitous in the '90s. Like Wesley mm-hmm. Snipes was so popular. Like, yeah, w- wild movie. Can't say that I loved it, but I am really glad that we saw it in that way on 35 in the big screen with you know yeah. a lot of people in the audience and you know a lot of great reactions, a lot of great audience energy. Um, that's probably the best way I could have seen this, um, this movie. Um, so now that we're, you know, we've gotten to, to the end of this, this month, the end of this, this De Niro retrospective. Um, is there any, is there any one thing, if there's one thing that you can kind of take away from, you know, was there anything that you learned or I guess what is, you know, the biggest takeaway from you when it comes to this De Niro retrospective? If we're t- if we're talking about takeaways, probably that like a lot of the movies that they showed, I have seen, which I'm amazed that mm. like he is probably the one actor where I, in terms of filmography, I've yeah. seen a like a lot of their work or most mm-hmm. of their work or the work that they've done. Um, and and it surprised me too because I still haven't seen Mean Streets, so I didn't get a chance to watch that. Um, I also, uh, didn't get a chance to watch Jackie Brown, which I'm really bummed about missing. But this realizing that his vast filmography there's like so much to discover still and there's still so much to watch um because i feel like the fan doesn't feel necessarily like a de niro deep cut but it's just like a movie that like one i had never i never you know had heard of um and again like i can do so much research on the man 
But then there's always going to be a movie that I haven't seen yet or a critically acclaimed performance that I haven't seen yet. Yeah. Um, and so just like I'm always like so looking forward to discovering even more of his work. Um, and I think that's sort of the biggest takeaway I took from this is that he has such an incredible body of work that I'm so happy that I'm still able to watch movies that I haven't seen that he's been a part of or, you know, have roles that like I haven't, you know, seen yet. So, um, yeah, yeah. He's just like one of my favorite actors. Um, he just has an incredible body of work that, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it just spans forever. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he's still in movies and, you know, killers of the flower moon. Like I hope, uh, uh, there's some big wins um, for this movie, but he, oh gosh, he was so good in this too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know I we know, didn't amazing. get a chance to watch it together, so we didn't have like a real time reaction to it together, but right. God. Um, yeah. I think, um, I think for me, like I, I used to think that, you know, his sillier side came later in life, you know, like when I was introduced to his movies with like yeah. analyze this and meet the parents but the first movie that I saw in this film series at Nighthawk was a movie from the 60s called Hi, Mom. And it's mm-hmm. a Brian De Palma film, uh, which, you know, I didn't realize that De Niro and De Palma had, a, you know, they were making movies, you know, for, for a minute uh, yeah. in, the, in the 60s. I just thought De Niro had only showed up as Al Capone in the, in De Palma's untouchables, but they, they had like a career of making movies before that. So that that's was the really only, cool. I think that's the only De Palma De Niro collaboration that I saw was untouchables. I did watch yeah. that a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. I also haven't seen Hi mom. So again, another, yeah. another film that I have, I have yet to watch. And you know, Hi mom being the, the first one that I saw, I, I was just so surprised at um, like this, this quirky version of like, you know, a 20 year old De Niro. Mm -hmm. Um, He had such a a quirkiness to him that was, you know, that made the audience laugh, made me laugh and, you know, kind of smirk or, and, uh, and that really surprised me because I just didn't realize that he, that that was such a major, you know, side to him. That's such a major part of De Niro as the performer is he has such a quirky, silly side to him. And, you know, that even comes out in the movies that aren't comedies, you know, movies like mm-hmm. the fan, when we yeah. saw the fan, like we were laughing our ass off because he, um, he has that looniness to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. That it comes out in Cape fear and obviously it came out in midnight run, like you said. Um, but there is that there is, that's always been part of him, you know, even since he was a 20 year old. Um, so that, that for me was such a, such a neat takeaway. Um, yeah, you know. it always it, it it always feels like he's like unintentionally funny, too. <laughs> like he's not yeah. he's not someone that does a lot of physical comedy, or just like someone that doesn't like utilize physical comedy in the same way as like I don't know um, other um, comedic actors do, like Jim Carrey. Yeah. You know, yeah, he it, it's just like his body language, like the way that he carries himself. Like he does yeah. that so much in Midnight Run. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene particularly that I remember, um, feel free to cut this out if you want to. Um, but he's talking in a phone booth and he's talking with a guy who's like demanding to know where Charles Grodin is. Like, you haven't brought him there yet. Like, we're looking for him now. Like, you have to be here now. And, um, Robert De Niro is, he's not playing an evil man in this, mm-hmm. in this movie. Like he's, uh, sort of an anti-hero in a way. Um, but he's like, you know, telling this guy like, um, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to, I'm going to bury his body in the swamp. Uh, <laughs> and he, a lot of, of expletives are said. Um, and yeah. Giles Grodin is looking at him like, you're going to do that to me. And then Robert De Niro's like, I'm not. He does, does a gesture like, I'm not, not going to do that. But it was so funny. Like he's his, it just like the way that he just delivers all of those lines and the way that his just like, like it's not supposed to be crazy funny. Like it's so subtle, but it's just like sort of these little things that he does. He's just like so charismatic and so good at doing it. Um, mm. But yeah, just like, he's just like someone that is so versatile. I know I said this before um, <laughs> and he just always continuously surprises me. Um, yeah. even in sort of like maybe his not most acclaimed roles, like mm-hmm. the intern or like New Year's <laughs> Day, you know, like sort of yeah, uh, yeah, his yeah. more like, I guess, like recent stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I'm so happy to like have like watched two films from this series, um, just like yeah. genuinely. Um, and I wish I could have seen more. Like I haven't seen Cape Fear yet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, again, I, other movies that I mentioned that I hadn't seen yet, but again, like, uh, I'm just like excited to be able to like still discover movies of his. Um, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say was that like, you know, for a person that's made movies for over 50 years, you know, I'm, I'm just so excited that I can really take my time, you know, getting to the, these blind spots that I have, you know, that are left in, you know, all the decades, you know, that he's made movies in. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, amazing film series. So fun to kind of, you know, do this deep dive into into De Niro. And yeah. Christine, this was so fun. I had fun watching The Fan with you. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you, Alec. Oh, gosh, this is like the first time I've ever done something like this. But I'm so glad that I, it's, it's about a subject that like I'm... Uh, I say passionate about so funny to say passionate <laughs> about Robert De Niro but just like I'm such a fan big big shouts to my friend Christine Gaddy for helping me react to the super fun time of diving deep into Robert De Niro's filmography at Nighthawk Cinema and I cannot express enough my gratitude for Christina Cacioppo and Desmond Thorne for joining me on this show I found it so valuable to get a peek behind the curtain into how our favorite movies get a second life on the silver screen. Be sure to follow Nighthawk Cinema on the socials so you can stay tapped into what they're throwing up on the marquee next. You can follow this show on Substack, Instagram, Letterboxd, Threads, and Blue Sky at Marquee Mixtape. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Substack. Original podcast artwork is created by Christina Montes. She's Studio Montes on Instagram. Original podcast music is created by Jeremy Bullen. Marquee Mixtape will be back in February, so stay tuned on what we're covering next by following our socials. Until then, we'll see you at the movies.